Uh, my name is Yvonne Rand, and I'm uh, visiting from the Zen tradition, where I've been practicing for quite a while. And what I uh, would like to talk about tonight is uh, the the nuts and bolts of having a uh, a meditation practice, and to uh, make some suggestions about some of the details in meditation practice, in particular uh, paying attention to certain details in one's posture. The Zen tradition, uh, particularly the uh, path that is my home path, um, pays quite a bit of attention, attention to form. can actually be a kind of catching place. But paying attention to form can also be a way of helping ourselves do what we want to do. So I'd like to uh, offer to you some of the things that I know that make a difference for myself and for the people that I practice with in terms of having a meditation practice which is authentic and which one has confidence in. Because uh, we can repeat our reactive patterns of judgment and criticism if we don't really know what we're doing, but we're convinced we're probably doing it wrong. (laughs) So I'd like to uh, see if we can demystify the whole business a bit. I'd like to begin by um, bringing up something that one of my dear teachers now long past, I used to talk about. He used to talk about how meditation, that is training the mind, which is one way of translating the word meditation, is akin to having two fire sticks which you rub together uh, in order to start a fire. It's a kind of Boy Scout territory. (laughs) But if you have fire sticks, two of them, and you rub them together, uh, in time there'll be some sparking which will catch some tinder which you can then use to actually start a fire. But of course if you rub the two sticks together and then you stop, and then you rub the two sticks together for a while and then you stop, and then you rub the two sticks together for a while and you stop, You never get any sparks, and you certainly never get any fire. It's actually a very old uh, image in Buddhism, and painfully accurate. (laughs) I know lots and lots of people who've been reading about Buddhism for 10 or 15 or 20 years, (laughs) and can be quite inspired, quite authentically inspired. That's particularly true of people who get taken with the literature of Zen Buddhism, which can be quite uh, delightful and intriguing. But the path that is uh, the articulation of the teachings of the Buddha is not something to read about only. I think there is a place for reading, for study, for intellectual activity, absolutely. 
But in the end, what really counts is taking what we are reading about and letting it drop into our body and mind and into our lives so that we have some direct experience of what is articulated in the teachings. And in the end, that's really all that counts. In the end, what counts is how we treat the people we live with and the people we walk with, work with, our dogs and cats and the people we see in the grocery store and, in fact, the other people on the highway. I had a very vivid experience of this today when I met with somebody who uh, is living at our living and practicing for a while at our place. I teach at a very small center in uh, near beach. It's not really a center, it's more like a corner. <laughs> we have about room for about 10% of you. <laughs> and I realized that uh, my being somewhat strict about um, protecting uh, some discreet private time in my life such that uh, I didn't want a lot of uh, unscheduled uh, connection with this young man. I didn't want to be interrupted. I'm writing a book, so I really didn't want to be interrupted when I'm working. But of course, there was the gift uh, appearing in my, literally my own backyard, of a person who wants some human contact and doesn't want to just communicate through notes. And uh, he was kind enough to let me have some sense about what it was he wanted, some direct exchange. Every once in a while I discover some place where I've drifted or gone to sleep. And if I'm open to being taught by what arises in the day, I will be, as I was today, about what on earth is my life about if I don't have time to say a few words with this person who lives in the hut in the back corner of the garden. What's the point of all this meditation practice if there isn't time to greet each other directly and to say good morning? So, what I know uh, makes a difference, and I know this fearsomely in my own experience and also from practicing with others for a number of years, is that having a daily practice, we use this word in the Buddhist meditation world a lot, by that I mean a, a, a meditation practice, a mind training practice that I do with consistency, that I do every day. If I don't have a practice or a series of practices where I have some sense, some actual direct sense of the graduated path that is laid out in the Buddha's teachings, I will wander and I'll have days when I think, oh, it would be nice to meditate or it would be nice to look at such and such a text or commentary. 
or it would be nice to go to a talk. But I won't ever develop my capacity to train the mind if I don't have some focus that I come to every day consistently and with clarity. Now, for most people in the beginning and sometimes in the middle, uh, what we do is we take on too big a, uh, a version of what we might do. We decide to climb Everest without walking up to the meditation hall or maybe some day hikes on Mount Tam. I have seen over and over again people develop a regular meditation practice by beginning with sitting or walking meditation for five minutes. But doing it every day, if possible, in the same place and at the same time. Because, of course, if we promise ourselves that we're going to do something and then we don't keep the promise, we undermine our self-confidence. We actually feed whatever tendency we may have towards being critical of ourselves. In some cases, harshly so. So please be very careful about what you promise yourself you're going to do. I'm going to get up and meditate every morning at five for an hour. (laughs) Probably not. You might do that for a day or two or three, but then you'll get distracted somehow or another. What I notice makes a big difference is to have some place where you live that is dedicated to a sitting meditation practice and that you get some help figuring out what to sit on, whether it's a chair or a bench like I'm sitting on, or a lower bench that you use for kneeling, or a cushion. Uh, Having equipment that uh, works can make a huge difference. If your hips are not so open and your legs are not so flexible, you may find sitting cross-legged difficult. But if you do some stretching in time, you'll be able to sit cross-legged with more ease. And in the meantime, you can take or make little cushions or rolled up towels or scarves or socks to put under your knees or ankles so that you have some support and ease in your sitting. If you're too uncomfortable in your sitting, you're probably not going to want to go to sitting meditation uh, unless you're something of a masochist. So developing some capacity to sit with your upper tor- with your torso aligned but with ease will probably be the first point of focus. And I emphasize sitting straight, sitting upright and aligned because if we sit in that posture, no matter whether we're sitting on the floor on a cushion or in a chair or on a bench, there is an effect on our mind with that aligned, straight posture. Where's your chin? 
a lot of you are meditating with your chins way out there like this. That's the physical posture that goes with thinking. And we have habits in the way we hold the body. And so some people will have their chins more to the right, and then other people will have them more to the left. But sticking out like that is the posture that goes with thinking. Interestingly, one of the ways of allowing the mind to be quiet is to bring the chin in. Not down, because you'll get a crick in your neck. And not up like this, but moving the face back so you get some double chins. <laughs> I noticed that um, many of you meditate with your eyes closed, which is fine, except that at this time in the evening, you also seem to be pretty sleepy. And uh, one of the dangers in uh, meditation is to uh, allow yourself to develop the habit of sleeping when you are planning to meditate. It's a habit that is very easy to fall into and not at all easy to change. So I would encourage you, if you're sleepy when you're meditating, to either open your eyes wide, look straight ahead of you, take a big full inhalation and exhalation, and then you can close your eyes again or let them drop. And if you persist in sleepiness, stand. We can meditate in all of the four noble postures. That is, sitting, standing, lying down, and walking. And we here in the United States, perhaps even in the West, um, interested in Buddhist meditation, have put sitting meditation very high and often neglect meditating in the other postures. So if you find that you're having a lot of sleepiness in your meditation, stand up, especially here where most people are meditating with their eyes closed, nobody will notice. <laughs> or go and do some walking meditation. Here you can go to the back of the room and just quietly do some walking meditation. If you sit with your hands on your thighs, let the hands be far enough back on the thighs so that the elbows are directly under your shoulders. If your hands are too far forward and the elbows are not underneath the shoulders, that will give you some strain in the lower back. These very small details can make a remarkable difference in the quality of your experience in your meditation practice. And in fact, one of the ways of establishing mindfulness is to begin with mindfulness of the body and the breath. So it's uh, completely in the spirit of that focus to pay particular detailed attention to the posture you're sitting in when you're practicing sitting meditation. I noticed a few of you uh, meditating lying down. If you meditate lying down, let your feet be flat on the floor, 
That way your back will be uh, completely flat and be supported by what you're lying down on. And if you have room, let your hands be by your sides at about a 45 degree angle with the palms up. Sleepiness is a big hazard in meditating lying down, but it, <laughs> one of the ways of working with that is, first of all, to not meditate lying down when you are very sleepy. I actually think that um, often we are sleepy because we need some rest. <laughs> and to meditate when we're very tired is not so skillful. If you, uh, when you're lying down, you do a kind of body scan and you let yourself really have awareness of all the points of contact with the floor and let yourself feel gravity holding you to the floor. It's a very easy way to stay quite present in your posture as you're, breathing, as you're uh, meditating. And once you've established your posture, whether you're sitting or standing or lying down, you, uh, once you establish your posture, uh, primarily with alignment, then you can extend your attention with the physical body and let it rest then on the breath. Just following the breath as it is. And of course, in the beginning of meditation, and for many people for a very, very long time, what we experience is the busyness of the mind. A bit like a flea. One of the classical images is like a monkey in a bush. And then we feel badly. We think something's wrong with our mind instead of recognizing, oh, this is the nature of the untrained mind, to be busy, to be all over the place. So if you're clear about what the focus of your attention is in your meditation, for example, posture and breath, then when there's wandering, you just notice wandering. Don't get into a big discussion about, with yourself about what you're thinking about because you'll stay there for a long time. It's the way of feeding the distraction of thoughts, of planning, of judging, of rehearsing, of reviewing, of arguing, etc. Notice thinking or the pattern of thinking and then firmly but gently bring attention back to posture and breath. So the beginning stages of meditation uh, are, is often called the meditation of constant placement. We place attention on the breath and then wander. Place on the breath, wander. And if you understand that this is the nature of the mind and this is what we are engaged in when we begin to train the mind, we are willing to notice the wandering without judgment and reestablish the focus. And of course, what we have is a lot more wandering than placement. The test, the classical test for cultivated attention is being able to keep attention on the object of attention for four hours. And I think for many of you that may sound like uh, going to Mars. but. It doesn't need to be. 
you all have much more capacity for that degree of stability and concentration and placement than you realize. But we, of course, live at a time and in a culture which is not about concentration and focus. We are a culture extremely cultivated in distraction. So what I'm talking about and what um, by your being here, by your coming to this center, you're actually, perhaps not realizing it, taking a rather revolutionary step. Is there some way for me to have some period in the day and in my life when I'm not distracted? May I have the willingness, the openness to considering and discovering how to experience showing up. I don't think you'll be disappointed. I'm pretty sure you won't. So, wandering, placement, wandering, placement, wandering, placement. At some point, it can be quite useful to study what does my mind do when there's wandering. And the way you can study or come to some answer to that question is to just observe, identify, and name what your mind does every time there's wandering. Thinking. Well, what kinds of thoughts? I just ran through a partial list. But that kind of noting and then coming back to body and breath, noting, coming back to body and breath, means I begin to see the pattern rather than getting caught with the content of some particular judgment or some particular reviewing or rehearsing. I begin to see what are the patterns in my mind stream that go with distraction, with wandering. And once I've taken on as the focus for my meditation for a few days or a few weeks, if I'm in a retreat, maybe I dedicate a retreat to uh, working with that question. What does the mind do when the mind wanders? Because then what happens is I know the familiar patterns, the ones that seem to come up the most often, and I will be in that awareness of them less likely to be caught. I'm a great planner. I can redecorate the living room or plan a new meditation hut or plan what the altar in the meditation room is going to look like or could look like. It's a very uh, marvelous and endless um, means of distraction. I don't have to be present with the ache in my hip or my leg if I start designing something. Feed the frustrated architect. But these days, when the impulse for planning arises, oh, breath in, breath out. In other words, the thought comes and goes, and I'm not caught by it. That's very useful. So that period of studying what the mind does when the mind is wandering can be very useful in knowing what the dominant patterns are. 
And when we don't feed them, when we don't keep reinforcing those patterns, whatever they are, they begin to be more and more faint. Not so much in the activity, but in our engagement with all that habitual patterning. So let me say a little bit about what's involved in having a daily practice. And then we'll have some time to talk about what you'd like to talk about. <laughs> As I said, it helps a lot to have some place where you live that is dedicated to sitting meditation. And I cannot recommend enough figuring out a way to do some walking meditation as well. And when the weather permits to uh, do walking both inside and outside. You want a place for your sitting meditation which is calm and taken care of and ideally not too warm and not too cold. If you're going to list one way or the other, go towards cold and wear a shawl. Otherwise, a warm room that's a little dark, <laughs> sleep arises. <laughs> so not too bright, but not too dark. Not too cold, but not too warm. Just right. That's right. How do you keep track of how long you've been sitting? <laughs> well, you can look at the clock all the time. <laughs> you can light a stick of incense, maybe beginning with a short stick, <laughs> and sit until it's burned out. Some people use a, an egg timer, preferably in the other room, so you don't hear it go tick, 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 tick. you just hear ding. You'll figure it out, I'm sure. <laughs> and begin with what you are willing to stand behind. This is what I am promising myself I'm going to do. And I would encourage you to start modestly and build on your success. Do not decide that you're going to practice sitting meditation when you wake up in the morning because the bed will win out. Make the decision the night before, and when you wake up, get up. Get dressed, brush your teeth, wash your face, and go down and go and sit. If you have a lot of resistance, go and stand behind your seat and just stand there until you either sit down or you clearly are boycotting the whole thing. <laughs> but at least you are not deluding yourself by promising yourself you're going to sit and then you, it kind of slips <coughs> off the map. And a month later you think, oh, I wanted to develop a daily meditation practice. We use this word practice because what we're talking about is doing something over and over and over again until we set a kind of pathway that helps us do what we would like to do. Does that make sense? If you have a hard time figuring out how to set aside some time for meditation in the morning, 
try a meditating at the end of the workday. You may have more sleepiness then, but you may be quite surprised at how refreshed you feel when you get up from your meditation. And I would much rather uh, encourage people to sit sometime during the day than make sitting in the early morning the pinnacle which you never get around to. You may find um, at the end of the workday doing some walking meditation and then sitting is much easier because you, the walking is activity and you can slow down the pace of the day so that you then go to sitting with much more ease. And to whatever you do to include the quality of ease will be very important. If there's too much pushing, if there's too much trying hard, you will defeat yourself. My dear teacher who uh, talked about the fire sticks, his parting words before he went back to India and then passed away uh, were, do as much as you can and take it easy. Not so easy to combine those two but very useful to have that encouragement. And of course, by his very example, I learned from him how important it is and how possible it is to be aligned and in attention, but very relaxed. It may take a while to discover your own capacity for that, but it is possible. It also helps to sit with other people. Sitting by ourselves is uh, not so easy to do. And so we can be encouraged by having someone or some group of people we sit with on a regular basis, if possible once or twice a week. And it also helps a lot to have somebody to talk to, to ask questions about, to find out, am I on the track or am I, you know, in the bushes somewhere? I, uh, I've just recently started a new study group, uh, which I've been, I've been doing this format with the people I practice with for a few years now. And um, we had our first meeting with this latest group I started on a Saturday afternoon. And when I told everybody that our monthly meeting, uh, what I would be expecting would be that everybody would say a few words about what was up with their meditation practice over the previous month. We have a series of focused meditations that we're doing. And I could see some people looking completely appalled. I have to talk about my meditation. But what I've learned is that people who cannot describe what they're doing often don't know what they're doing. That listening to other people describe what's coming up for them in their meditation can be enormously helpful, a source of support and ideas about what to do and how to work with what arises in the mind. But that in bringing ourselves to the process of discovering how to describe what's happening in our meditation, we actually begin to hone some skill in observing and describing.
And we may not be very good at it initially, but we can develop those capacities. If you think meditation is mysterious, uh, I would encourage you to demystify what practices you're doing. The Buddha was himself was very, very clear. He was a great teacher and a great guide because of his great clarity. And we are blessed at this time uh, here in the West and here in the United States that there is so much very clear and sound commentary on the Buddhist path that is beginning to be more and more free of the cultural baggage and focusing on what is the essential core articulation of this path of practice that the Buddha demonstrated and taught. So don't give up on uh, what you don't know. Let that be uh, what you respect. Respect what you don't know and let that become the source of your intention for how to move in your meditation practice. If you're clear about a question that arises and you honor that question, you will begin to discover out of your own experience and the experience of others some answers to the questions that arise for you. And initially, the questions will have a lot to do with the nuts and bolts and actually, how do I meditate? What's the actual posture? What do I do with my mind? What does it mean to place the mind on the body and the breath? It means to place attention on the body in particular, not in general. Is the back straight? Do I have some constriction in the shoulders? Is there some lift with the chest so the shoulders are relaxed and dropped? Is the chin a little bit in? Am I aligned? Or have I fallen into some habit that I wasn't aware I had, holding my head this way or this way? I have a habit of, when I'm sitting, sometimes having one foot slightly forward of the other one. So in my regular meditation seat, I have my bench on a rug which has a line in it so I can actually line my feet up as a way of bringing more attention into what is habitual. That level of attention in the physical posture can be very, very helpful in allowing the mind to settle and beginning to discover that, oh, when, when I'm aligned and centered and grounded, that goes with mind states that have certain characteristics. Enhanced attention. You might explore, for example, the difference in driving your car with the window rolled down and your arm out the window and driving with one hand on the steering wheel over against being aligned as you sit in the car. What's the level of attention as you're driving? That make sense? 
practicing on the cushion may inform practicing off the cushion, I would hope. What's your posture like as you're sitting at the desk or talking on the telephone or driving the car or standing in the kitchen fixing some vegetables for dinner? You begin to notice on the cushion the relationship between the physical body, the breath, and the mind. But then you begin to pay attention to the relationship when you're not meditating. And then the path begins to extend. And you begin to have a sense of your capacity to integrate what you're doing in your spiritual practice with your so-called everyday life. Okay, I think that's enough nuts and bolts. So, um, I wonder if you have some questions or issues that you would like to bring up that we can talk about. Yes? What does walking meditation look like? Well, I'll show you. Does this travel? doesn't look like it travels. Okay, I'm going to take it off. Um, first of all, well, let me just say, if I can get untangled here. Um, in walking meditation, the first thing you want to do is to figure out or find, discover the pace that is slower than your usual pace for walking, <laughs> but isn't so slow that you feel tippy. So initially, you will walk faster than you will after you've been meditating, doing walking meditation. Um, so the first thing you want to establish is pace. The second thing you want to do is to uh, bring your attention to the bottoms of the feet and the sensations in the bottoms of the feet as you place the foot on the surface you're walking on. And then in time, you in extend that awareness to not just the bottoms of the feet as the feet come to the floor, but with lifting, moving, placing. And that begins to, you have that attention without uh, being so self-conscious or feeling awkward about it. Begin, there begins to be some flow. And as with sitting, uh, standing, and lying down, if you're aligned and you're not doing this, <laughs> particularly if you let the eyes drop, um, because eye consciousness tends to dominate all the other senses, and particularly if you're out of doors when you're doing walking meditation, all the other senses will begin to be very heightened if the eyes are a little bit dropped. But, of course, then what I notice is people do this because they think their eyes and their head are kind of joined, <laughs> which, of course, they are, but <laughs> you can drop your eyes instead of your head up and aligned. Otherwise, you get a crick in your neck. Then you either want to emphasize relaxation if you do that, let your hands be by your sides. Or if you've got a jacket on, you could put them in the pockets of your coat. If you want to be more concentrated, you can clasp your hands here, like this. So that's your choice. So then you, you work with establishing uh, pace and bringing uh, awareness into the bottoms of the feet and into the physicalness of walking. And then as you're ready, you extend your attention or your awareness to include the breath.
breathing in and breathing out. Ideally, if you can have a, a run of 50 or 60 feet, that's great. So you'd walk, turn around, stop, walk back, turn around, stop, walk back. This is not about going somewhere. Um, Saturday, several people said, well, can I meditate walking from my car to my office or to the post office? I said, you can walk mindfully, but you're not meditating because you're going somewhere. This is about really completely being present with each footstep. So let me show you what it looks like. If you don't go too slowly, you won't get arrested for being a zombie if you do it properly. <laughs> okay, so. Uh, is this, yeah, that's right. Um, I have a bone spur in my left hip, and if I walk too slowly, uh, my hip gets very aggravated, so I don't do slow walking anymore. Uh, but the classical way of doing walking meditation, particularly in the Zen tradition, is to walk very slowly. I mean, you know. I mean, it might take me 10 minutes to get over to where <laughs> But I can't, I can't do it anymore. It just, my hip gets very cranky. Um, but the walking that I was just talking about, I do it in hospitals. I do it if I'm in the city and I need to just get myself grounded and centered in the middle of a busy day. Uh, there's much more flexibility in terms of where you can do it, uh, which I think is very useful. But also, if, I ha if you have the experience of walking meditation for a half an hour or 45 minutes, and you do that for a while, you can then do walking meditation for five minutes, and you drop into that deeper place that you've experienced with the longer period of practice. And it's an incredibly potent way to interrupt the pace of the day. It can really save you in terms, if you have a job in which you've got a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, going at a fast pace, dropping out for five or ten minutes of walking meditation can be enormous uh, stabilizer and interrupting that fast pace so that you can go back into the pace of your work life and not have completely lost track of your mind and what you're doing, etc. <laughs> so it's, I, I think it's a wonderful practice. It's also the practice to do when what's arising in the mind is a lot of agitation and a lot of fear or a lot of anxiety. You do not want to do sitting meditation with those mind states. You may, if you do some walking meditation, be able to then sit down. But you want to start with a moving practice that's much kinder to try to sit for any period of time with a lot of anxiety or fear is just not being kind to yourself and it's not skillful. 
Did you have a question? Yeah. Right. The slump. The meditation slump. Yes. I know it well. Well, it sounds like that's not okay with you. that's not okay with you. But it doesn't matter how. It doesn't matter why. Eventually, you'll see how. Forget about why. No, absolutely not. Oh, slump. Hmm. Reach towards the ceiling with the top of your head. Imagine somebody pulling you by the, you know, the top knot and the whole spine elongates and you actually will experience yourself sitting on your cushion more lightly. You might experiment with, uh, are you sitting cross-legged? Experiment with a slight pelvic roll and you will feel the place where, ah, that's it, the spine's aligned. And, of course, you forget. You start thinking about something and then schlump. How much do you practice sitting up straight the rest of the day? Do you lean up against a chair? I mean, we've all grown up on furniture. The first time I went to Japan and lived in a traditional <coughs> Japanese house, which means the walls are made of paper, my back was killing me for six weeks because I had nothing to lean up against. And I didn't have the muscle tone to sit up straight on my own. This is, you know, meditation takes energy and rouse yourself. You know, you have to, oh, so develop my capacity to sit up straight. And after a while, you can sit up straight with, with real ease. And you begin to pay attention to the chairs you sit in, and you realize how many of them are not wholesome for your body. Finding a, a chair to sit in that's uh, the right height and isn't tilted, and it's a whole inquiry in itself. Anyway, those are the suggestions I would make. And if you can notice the schlumping without judging it, if you can notice, oh, schlumping, and adjust your posture. It's that opportunity to practice observing, identifying, and naming without the added reactive pattern of judgment and criticism. This is what we mean by training the mind. Because it's that the reactive patterns are what are our habits and what we're not even aware of. So in having a... Uh, lost my microphone here having a um, a regular meditation practice what happens is that you you begin to notice things that you hadn't been noticing before you begin to have some increased gradually increasing awareness about the habits in the body including 
noticing the schlumping a little bit sooner. Noticing, oh, that seems to happen when I'm sitting at my desk. Okay. Yes, here in the middle, over here. Yes. You have to speak a little louder. Right. You're actually checked it, checking out. Well, so then you get to notice that. Checked out. Come back to posture and breath. And the more you do that, the more you'll begin to notice other times off the cushion when you're checking out. We don't do things on the cushion that we don't do other times. This is the time when we, when we have less activity, less distraction, less noise, to give ourselves a chance to begin to develop our capacity to pay attention. We don't do it in the midst of activity. That's graduate work. I, I work with a lot of people who have this habit of checking out. It's not at all unusual. And, you know, it's, it's a pattern. It's a reactive pattern. And if you just notice the pattern and in time develop attention which is active and highly energized and stable, you can actually begin to develop your ability to be in attention even when you're checking out. At that point, the pattern begins to crumble, begins to come apart, and begins to dissolve. That's really the promise in this tradition for release from suffering. If we understand suffering as our reactive patterns, that as we develop our capacity for attention, we can begin to be more and more in attention in the midst of reactive reactivity arising, especially reactive emotions. And most of us are used to, I don't want to hang out with fear or anger or whatever. But when you do, it just, oh, even that has the mark of impermanence. Oh, it rises and falls. And there's this, as I said, kind of coming apart or dissolving of the pattern itself. And, of course, what I would be concerned about is that when you notice checking out that you would be critical or judging that. Oh. So part of the practice is cultivating that mind of, oh. Somebody else? Yes, in the back. Yeah. Um, 
Yes. Yes. Okay, that's very helpful. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, the basic practice is the cultivation of attention. The classical focus is on the breath. When there's some arising, wandering or a pain, and I have a reaction to that, then there are a number of practices I can do, but one of the early beginning practices is the practice of noting, sometimes called bare noting, where I note and then shift my attention to a neutral body sensation and the breath. But in the practice of meditation, whenever there's any arising, if we have developed this capacity to note and then return to what is the kind of home plate, if you will, which is primarily and most classically on the breath, on the body and the breath, I, that's the way I begin to develop this capacity of the mind to be extended or broad rather than constricted. The noting practice is a particular practice to do within the context of whatever arises with this <coughs> cultivation of attention on the breath. Does that clarify a little bit? The thing that I'm doing with my foot is giving myself some, well, I'll, let me elaborate. One time, somebody no noticed to me that I was sitting on my cushion so that my right leg was a lot closer to the wall than my left leg was, my left knee. But I was, it was so familiar, I didn't notice that. So for some while, I was very careful to line my cushion up uh, with the, par lined up with the b lines of the boards on the platform I was sitting on as I'm doing with my foot. This carpet doesn't help me at all because it's, you know, there's no line. But it gives me some external reference point to notice are my feet, are the ends of my toes lined up. So during the course of a retreat, I will sit down and I may not get my feet lined up when I go to sit down, but at some point, I'll look over and say, oh, look at that. There are those fat right foot toes ahead of the other foot. <laughs> and so it gives me a, a reference point that isn't just my inside feeling about, are my feet lined up? Because often I think I'm lined up and I'm sitting like this. So there are times where having some external reference point can help me begin to realize that I think I'm lined up, but I'm actually leaning one way or the other, or with the one foot forward. Pardon me? Yes, and to let myself have some assistance other than what it feels like from the inside which is not very reliable.
in time, as I begin to be more experienced with sitting with alignment, then I begin to notice when I'm out of alignment. But if I have some habitual way of holding my head or holding one shoulder or whatever, it, it will take a while to bring more attention to noticing that. We don't just, you know, we aren't like those China, Chinatown flowers. You drop them in water and they bloom. You know, we have to double dig the bed and put fertilizer and water and sunshine and be patient and keep coming back to what's actually so and working with our posture and our mind. And of course, the, our physical body will show us a lot about our state of mind if we begin to pay some attention to that possibility. Yeah. Uh huh. I think we have to work with the body we have and the condition we have. You know, classically in a Zen meditation room, you sit up and you sit straight and you don't move. Not at our place. People lie down, people have bark a lounger type chairs they sit in. People sit on these benches. People have a million little cushions under their legs. Um, and I, I think we try to fit ourselves into some mold. I mean, you know, I, uh, during our winter retreat, uh, sat with my legs under me in what's called seiza for one of the meals. And I'm not supposed to do that because of this bone spur. Well, I had bursitis for three weeks, you know, a little arrogance there with, oh, well, I can do this, I'm sure. One meal, you know. I cannot cross my legs and I can't sit with my legs under me without aggravating my hip. So I need to sit in such a way that takes into account what's happening with my hip. My concern is that out of our fear of discomfort and not knowing how to work with discomfort, we go for something to lean against without letting ourselves explore what it's like to develop the muscle tone and the capacity to support ourselves and to sit up straight. But, well, but then you've got some idea of how it should be and perfection, maybe. <laughs> Work with the consequences of what happened with your shoulder. How do you how do you work with that physical condition and cultivating your capacity to sit with alignment? Well, maybe what's skillful for you is you sit in a chair that supports your back in a certain way. I'm just posing the possibility of not everybody in this room needs to sit in a chair that supports our backs. We could explore a little bit what it's like to sit the way I'm sitting, which is... You know, I'm, very, I'm quite stable. 
I've got the stability of a three-legged stool. I've got as much weight on my feet as I do on my butt on the, on, the, on the bench. And I can sit like this for a long time. But I don't think you could start. I mean, you can't just say, oh, well, now I'm going to do that. There's training and practice. And do it in reasonable quantities. So, you know, training. Five minutes and then ten. And in your case, I would certainly uh, pay attention to giving your back and shoulder the kind of support that will allow you to be aligned but with the support that's appropriate. Don't generalize. Our bodies are very particular. The body I have today is not the body I had yesterday or tomorrow or tonight or in the morning. How do I stay present with the characteristics of body now. And I would definitely, there is no reason to not be able to meditate because you have some physical limitation. It's just a matter of being imaginative about how to do it and not um, forcing yourself into the standard mold of full lotus with no cushion under your tush, you know. Unless you're young and doing a lot of yoga, it's probably not going to happen this lifetime. <laughs> At least for some of us. <laughs> and I think that's okay. Yes? Some people actually uh, go into a kind of uh, numb or dulled or uh, what, what people commonly call checking out, where they're not really quite aware of where they are. They, they leave, if not physically, in the mind. It's just one of the many possibilities. We are very intelligent, and we can come up with all kinds of things to do other than to be present, especially if we're not used to being present and we're a little afraid of being present. And you're not going to do all those things that you just named at once because they're not all going to be arising at once. No, the mind that's quiet is not zoned out, not checked out. Those are two different <coughs> mental states. And it's very, very easy to think that when I'm calm or quiet, I'm in attention. I may not be. And in fact, the point of meditation is not to be calm or pleasant or happy. It's to be in attention with whatever is arising. And we... the this, the consequence, the fruit of meditation may be calmness or peacefulness or periods of happiness. That's wonderful, but then that gets to be what we're going for. And w then we've, we've lost track of the, the through line, which is the cultivation of attention in the moment. That's what we're going for. And that means to be willing to be in attention with whatever arises, whether we like it or we don't like it or it's 
pleasant or it's unpleasant or ugh, this again. Then I get to be present with the ugh. It's fun. <laughs> and you know, the mind is just amazing. Studying the mind is just remarkable. So maybe on that cheery note, there are a few more questions. I'm, I'll be glad to uh, answer some questions, but I know it's uh, now time when we all turn into pumpkins. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.